and welcome to episode 67 of our podcast, Two Chairs Talking. My name is David Grigg, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, the thoroughly bewhiskered Perry Millimis. Thank you, David. It takes one to know one. <laughs> We're both very rather whiskered, aren't we? Oh, but, uh, yes. I think you, you're doing better than I am. Well, uh, I had a bit of a trim up about three or four weeks ago because uh, during the latest lockdown, I just let it go. And um, I went to went towards what they refer to as the full Tasmanian <laughs> the idea that it gets starts out from the years and just gets bushier and bushier and starts and down to going west and, and don't you, you were quite that long not no. quite that long but it was getting no, no. was getting out there and thought it best to try and trim it back to it's getting a little bit warmer in the weather and um uh, thought it's probably a better idea just to uh, come back into come back into the real world and uh, try not to look like you've uh, just as my mother used to say, being dragged through a bush backwards. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, how, apart from that, how are you? Good. Oh, good. good, good. Uh, we're into the uh, the silly season, well and truly, of course. Yes. Um, after having nothing to do uh, for all the lockdown and then coming out of it again, I now find myself with more to do than I can possibly finish. No, I know that feeling. Uh, but I've also, yeah. But the good thing is, you're getting out and about and seeing people, and the weather's picked up, which is good. Uh, and uh, it's just just a decent time. And you know, you wouldn't be dead for quids, would you? Well, no, no. So from that perspective, it's it's all okay. It's all good. You just have to you just have to get the timing right and sort of try to make sure that you don't put too much pressure on yourself, and don't set yourself too many hard deadlines, which. You and I have a tendency to do. David. We do have a tendency to and do. And we that, need yeah. to we need to take a step back and just mm. breathe, breathe, smell the roses, as they say. Yes, yes, yes. Although my roses got deadheaded on the weekend, so they're all just about gone. But anyway, oh, don't talk to me about the garden. It's I'm, my <laughs> wife does all that, and she's much better at it than I am. Oh yeah, yeah, indeed. All right, um, I thought we might just mention a little bit of news. I was going to ask you about the Hugo Awards. Uh, all the not all the belts have now closed. They have all the voting's closed. Um, the awards will be announced at Discon Three, which is running between the fifteenth and nineteenth of December. So, what's that? A bit over about ten days away, nine days away from our time. Probably ten days their time. Generally, the Hugo Awards are held on the you know, Saturday, Sunday night, Saturday night. Not normally the last night, yeah. uh, because it's a pretty big event and they have a big lot of parties afterwards to for all the the Hugo losers and the, the Hugo winners go off and do whatever they do. Their publishers shout them out to something or other, I guess. Mm. So we won't be able to give anybody any information regarding the uh, the Hugo Awards until we come back in the new year. Indeed. Uh, so um, uh, maybe we should mention that at this stage, that this is going to be our last uh, episode of this particular year. Yep. We're having a what's known as a well-earned break leading into Christmas, catching up on some, uh, say, non-prescribed reading, uh, although we do a fair bit of non-prescribed reading, oh, yeah. um, just catching up on on stuff. Uh, and then in the new year, we'll be back with our best of the year episodes, one for books and one for film and television. And uh, we'll hopefully by then also be able to have a few additional uh, discussions with some people regarding some of the films that are doing the rounds because they're all now rolling back into um, the cinemas. I know that um, uh, the Dennis Villeneuve version of Dune has been out for <clears throat> four or five days here in Australia. It's just about finished everywhere else, but because we were locked down, uh, we didn't get it until December the 2nd. So I'll be going to see that on Thursday. Have a look at it. Oh, um, sounds good. I've given up reading reviews of it now. I've uh, picked up bits and pieces of it, and you get to the stage where you think, it's just a waste of time listening to some of these uh, or reading some of these reviews. You've got to make up your own mind. Go see the film. And, you know, you have, it, it's one of those ones that it's almost going to be compulsory if you're a science fiction fan to go along and have a look at. Even if you hate June, it is probably going to be one of the big events of the year. Uh, and so from that perspective, worthwhile going to see. Oh, I'm sure it will be. Yep. And that's about it, really. There's not much else. We're also um, starting to get uh, the best books of the year being listed. Uh, of course, the major one in the field is the uh, 
Locust Magazine's recommended reading list, which comes out in the February issue, which is only about seven weeks away, really, because it hits the hits my mail, electronic mailbox uh, on the first of the month, first of February. Right. So I'll be interested to see what uh, they've got what there. They recommend. Um, okay. I haven't been hearing a huge amount of hype about many books this year. Um, there's a new, um, well, there's a few few around that. Uh, may start picking up. You're starting to see some of them turning up in some of the best of uh, lists that are out. I mean, I think Amazon have done theirs, New York Times, Goodreads have now got their voting out for their best of the year. Uh, And so uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But we'll talk about that in the new year more than now. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. But other than that, that's it for the news, which is actually good because it means that nothing bad's happened. And all we're doing now is we're just waiting for the Hugo results in a couple of weeks. All right, so the other thing that we wanted to talk about was that there's been a bit of a, what would you call it, a kerfuffle on Twitter um, because the New York Times Review of Books tweeted at one point uh, about a review of uh, a biography of H.G. Wells and they, they quoted the review as saying, with Jules Verne and the publisher Hugo Gernsback, H.G. Wells invented the genre of science fiction. And, of course, they were inundated by people saying, no, no, absolute nonsense. You know, science fiction goes back much, much further than that, and Frankenstein and this and that, and, and you know, and all these all these going back to, to almost to Roman times, you know, fantasy stories and so on. And uh, so there was quite a kerfuffle, and I just thought we might have a quick chat about that, you know, who we thought invented science fiction. If you read um, Brian Knowles's uh, very good book uh, about science fiction, Billion Year Spree, he's, uh, he's very definite that he thinks that Mary Shelley uh, invented science fiction with her novel Frankenstein. And he, he, he makes a fairly good case of that, uh, I think. So do you have opinions on this, Perry? It depends on your definitions, and I'm sorry to basically throw this spanner in the works, but it does depend on your definitions a bit. Sure. If you're talking about modern American science fiction, there is a case to be made that Hugo Gernsback, with his amazing stories, was probably the start of it. If you're talking about how we see science fiction as a whole genre worldwide... I think that you pretty much should go back to Shelley. I think that Frankenstein is... Well, Mary Wollstonecraft, Shelley, yeah, you have to go back there. That's where things start. It becomes... Um, you can see a sort of a scientific approach. Yeah, I think that's the key, isn't it? It's really... It's, it's the use of science rather than magic yep. that, that she, she implemented, and I think that's relevant. Or sleight of hand or... You know, just yeah, basically or just or whatever, whatever. Or, the or, the, or, the, or the yeah. gods or religion to be able to get yeah, there. Yeah, for sure. I can see a very definitive line from Frankenstein back in, what was it, 18... 1815, just over 200 years ago. From there all the way right through to um, uh, Metropolis, the film, uh, uh, through Asimov's uh, Robots, all the way right through to the Murderbot series, a series by Martha Wells. I can see a direct line linking all of those. Mm. If you get back further than that, I'm not sure that I've got the expertise to be able to tell no, you about you, what you happens. You get into the sort of the gothic stories do, and but ghosts. You can and see stuff, it from yeah. there. And I think that if you get back to that point and you can say, if you can go from there and carry all that through, one of the great memes of modern science fiction, and I mean by modern I mean from the 20th century and 21st, if you take all of that, then you can see that line. And I think that that sort of would lead me to, to go down the line of Aldous and mm. uh, Frankenstein as being the start. Yeah. Nobody held up a flag and said, here we are, we're starting a new genre. It's only in retrospect you can go back and have a look at it. But to state that it was with Wells and Gernsback alone, nah. No, no, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's relevant to actually look at the, the preface to Frankenstein, which Mary Shelley wrote, because it's clear that she she understood what she was doing in, in setting it in a sort of scientific uh, background. Yep. So I, I'm just going to read this little quote, which I found just today, because I decided to do the research. So the preface starts, The event on which this fiction is founded 
has been supposed by Dr. Darwin and some of the physiological writers of Germany as not of impossible occurrence. I shall not be supposed as according the remotest degree of serious faith to such an imagination, yet in assuming it as the basis of a work of fancy, I have not considered myself as merely weaving a series of supernatural terrors. So, now, the, the, the Dr. Darwin mentioned there is not Charles, by the way, that's Dr. Erasmus Darwin, but you know, she's pretty clear that she's not writing some supernatural stuff, she's basing it on the scientific thinking of people like uh, Erasmus Darwin and, and other people. So I think I think that's pretty relevant. So anyway, I, I'm not sure when the um, uh, the first use of the word scientist came about, uh, but they at the time 200 years ago they were referring to people as sort of natural philosophers, yep. sort of uh, dealing with uh, the natural world and philosophizing about that, which is our equivalent of physicists, chemists, biologists, that's the way I take it. So scientists in the hard sciences. And so her um, point there about the uh, the German philosophers, I take as being the natural philosophers. Uh, and that then gives me the hint that she was talking about science in our modern understanding of the term. And therefore, it fits. It's an excellent, it's an excellent quote. Thank you for that. That's all right. All right, well, we'll, now having resolved that matter, we might run on to something else. All right, okay, sounds good. Which is what we've been reading. I'm talking crime novels today. I've had a bit of a a run-through with a lot of science fiction this year, so I thought I'd better catch up on some of the old crime novels that I've got lying around the house. And the first one of these, and I'm going to do them in chronological order, Uh, the first of these is a book that was published in 1977 called Laidlaw by William McIlvaney. Again, this is another one of these books that I have had around for probably close to 30 years. I've got the Coronet Edition 1979, for which I paid the grand total of $2.50 for it. Brand wow. new. So I've had this book for close to 40 years and never read it. <laughs> so this is another one of those ones that's been on the shelf for that long, and it's about time I got to it. Now, as I said, title is Laid. Laidlaw, 1977, by William McIlvaney. It's the first in the author's Jack Laidlaw series. And one of the reasons why I decided to pick this up is that um, there's been a prequel to this particular series recently published. Now, McIlvaney only wrote three books in this particular series, but he left behind um, a series of notes for for the fourth book, but actually if you like, the prequel to the three that he had already written, but he didn't finish it before he died, sometime 15, 16 years or so ago. Now, I'm not sure how it came about, but Ian Rankin, who we know as uh, the author of the Rebus novels, which are uh, a long-running set of excellent uh, police procedurals and post-police procedures, if you like, uh, set in Edinburgh, has picked up the baton for this particular novel and has recently published a book which uh, is called The Dark Remains. Now, he's taken McIlvaney's notes and expanded on them. Now, given that Rankin has stated that he based his character Rebus on Laidlaw and uh, he decided that he really liked the way that Laidlaw depicted Glasgow in all its faults and all of its glory, that he would do the same with Edinburgh, Rankin seems like the absolutely and utterly perfect person to be able to do it. And the publishers were very happy about Rankin picking it up, not only because it gives it this new novel a lot of uh, extra kudos because Rankin's name is going to sell a large amount of, uh, of books, but it also brings... McIlvaney's name back into the public eye. Now, McIlvaney wrote, as I said, uh, three novels in this particular series. He's considered to be, for want of a better term, the godfather of tartan noir. Tartan (laughs) Tartan noir was a great, great term. I like it. It's the idea of, you know, Scottish Scottish noirish crime novels. Mm. And this particular novel has ended up being ranked among the top ten all-time best Scottish crime novels. Now, you might think there's there's not 10. 
But let me tell you, there's a large number of writers of uh, crime fiction coming out of Scotland. And so this ranks with uh, with books, along with books by Rankin, Louise Welsh, Denise Mina, Miner, uh, Chris Brookmeyer, Val McDermott and Stuart McBride. Uh, there's some uh, quite excellent writers there. Uh, and so another reason why I decided to pick this up. But let's talk about the book rather than just bits and pieces sure, around sure. it. Now, Jack Landlaw is a um, Glasgow police uh, detective inspector, and he's been assigned to the case of a missing 17-year-old girl who's been raped and murdered and found dumped in a park. Now, Laidlaw has a bit of a reputation within the police force of being a bit of a maverick in the way he behaves and solves his crimes because he does so by getting involved with the people that are associated with the victim and also the people that are around the crime itself. He doesn't rely wholly and solely on uh, the facts to be able, and the data to be able to plot his way through this police procedural. So most of the hierarchy don't particularly like him, but they put up with him because he keeps on giving them results. Now, he's joined in this particular case for this first one by Detective Constable Brian Harkness. And you get the idea that Harkness has been put on to act as uh, Laidlaw's second by the hierarchy in order to sort of keep him in line, to sheepdog him and make sure that he does the right thing, reports in daily so that people know what's going on, uh, so that he doesn't go off too much off on a tangent and go somewhere. And so Harkness comes in and he's he's very wary about Laidlaw. He's heard about him, he's heard about the reputation, so he's worried about how things are going to go. But as the novel progresses, you can start to see that Harkness is moving more towards Laidlaw's way of doing things. He can see the benefit about what's happening. He doesn't quite understand it all, but he sees certain points in conversations that Laidlaw has. He doesn't have interrogations. He has conversations with people. But the conversations are handled in such a way that a lot of information is gained from the people that he's talking to. But in a sort of a social atmosphere, so there's a lot of stuff going on in pubs. Rankin does this as well with Revis. Mm -hmm. And all of uh, the way that he goes about it, Harkness slowly comes to the view that he understands what it is that Laidlaw is doing. Now, I've always long had the view that there's a very big difference between US and UK police procedurals. In the US, it always seems to me that the major detective who's doing the work, say Harry Bosch in Los Angeles, the Michael Connolly stories, his major form of conflict in the novel, apart from the crime itself, putting that to one side, the major form of conflict he has is not with his superiors, who always seem to back him quite a lot. It's with other Justice Department. So it's either the attorney, you know, the, the prosecutors, the attorney general, the FBI, other organizations that are trying to muscle in on his particular investigations and are trying to take him to court for things that he either has done or hasn't done. That happens in the US. In the UK, because there aren't those over, overriding, um, other organizations like the FBI stepping in and stepping on people's toes, the interior conflict, other than the crime, is with the hierarchy that goes up. Most of the time, you will find in UK police procedurals, the ones that I've seen, the ones that give the detective most of the hard time are the people further up that particular police uh, detective in the, in the police hierarchy. They're the ones that are always giving him, uh, pushing him for results, giving them, you know, threatening them with dismissal and all that sort of stuff. So it's a complete different way that things are working. And that's exactly what happens here with the Laidlaw stuff. But you have to remember this is 1977 that this is written. Most of the major series, if you go back and have a look at them, the things like the Reba stuff, the Michael Connolly, the Jack, the Jack Reacher, that's not the same sort of thing. But anyway, a lot of those big, long-running crime and detective stories all started in the mid to late 80s. This is the late 70s. And so there was a big gap. Prior to that, in England and in the UK, most of the police detectives were almost 
paragons of virtue. They were the ones that did everything right. They were well respected by everybody around them. And they're, the, the stories that we're dealing with were almost almost cosies in the instance, you know, the idea that you're never going to get very much in the way of violence here. The police inspector is going to be well respected by everybody um, that they come across and they're going to gradually work their way through. Think Midsummer Murders, that sort of stuff. This laid law is different. Here you're dealing with the down and dirty, gritty part of of uh, Glasgow. You're not getting a painted you know, brushed over view of a lovely city that's everything's hunky-dory. No, 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 There's a lot of stuff going on here. There's a lot of criminal element um, underneath running the city in a lot of ways that Laidlaw has to steer his way through. There's also the point that, as I said about the previous uh, styles of police inspectors, that they had happy home lives. Laidlaw doesn't. And so I'm th- thinking... This may be near the beginning of when that whole idea of the tortured police inspector came in, completely dedicated to his job, because it's mainly him. I'm sorry, I'll say him, but it's mainly him. Completely dedicated to his job to the detriment of his family and home life. So they're generally separated. They've got drinking problems. They may have health problems. And you see this all the way right through. Rebus is another one that has this. Uh, You go to... um, uh, the Henning Meckel um, uh, Wallander uh, stories over in Sweden, and he was in a similar situation. They've all got problems because that helps make the character more of a human character for people to be able to read. And you need to have something that's going to be ongoing in the back of the story to carry it through. If you've got somebody who doesn't really have a home life and doesn't do anything and doesn't go to the sport or the pub or the or watch TV or read a book, are they a human being at all? Not really. They're just basically a blank character. So anyway, there's a lot to like about this particular book because I think it's getting back to that point where it's things that we take for granted within crime fiction, in police procedures in particular, were starting. And it's the crime itself, of course, is going to be solved. But I think in almost in, in in a way, the crime investigation here is almost secondary to the picture of the city and the people within it. Laidlaw finds his way into the crime area, the people that are associated with the crime that's been um, that's been undertaken fairly quickly, almost too quickly. He's almost straight away, he doesn't have to sort of he's not taking wrong turns all over the place. He sort of zeroes in straight away into the area where it is, and then he uses that to prise open the whole of the puzzle that's there in front of him, and he works his way through. Once he gets in, he's got a lumber of sidetracks, and sometimes he goes, takes longer than he should to find out what's going on. But the first piece going in, where he's got no evidence whatsoever, comes across, in retrospect, as maybe a little bit too quick. Putting that aside, this is an excellent book. It um, is... Got yeah, it's 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 one that I think that if you want to know what's happening in police procedures and where it's all come from, this is one of those ones that you need to read. Now you need to be aware if you read this that there's a fairly strong anti-homosexual thread running through this the plot of this, which to our um, modern eyes uh, is going to be oh that's a bit you know pushing things a little bit too far. You have to take that into account. This is written in the 1970s. So that's a bit of a mark against it. Uh, but overall, I, I I really enjoyed this particular book. Um, uh, and I gave it uh, 3.9 out of 4. Out of 5, rather. So it, I, I thought it was good. It sounds good. It sounds good. So you, will you be going on to read the, the others in the series, you think? I will be searching them up. I've searched... I certainly wanted to read this one before um, the new Rankin book uh, lobbed yeah, into the house. Sense. I'm fairly sure that will be somewhere under the Christmas tree. No, Either no. I've purchased it unknowingly for my wife or my wife has purchased it for me. Do you well, often get duplicates that way? No, no. We're, that's all lined up. I'm told, you haven't bought this for me, have you? No, no okay, that's good. all right. That's good. That's good. That's good. Uh, so uh, I'm told the books that I buy, um, and but there are some times where... A certain book has been um, purchased by the wife 
when she purchased it for herself. Uh, uh, but it is from me. So that's just the way of it. It's just a little game that we have in the house over this thing. But the Rankin books are generally ones that always are going to uh, always going to turn up. So I'm looking forward to that. Indeed, indeed. All right, well, I'm going to make a, a very big change of pace because this is a, uh, the book I'm going to talk about is actually a, what you might call a, a children's book. I've talked several times on the podcast and elsewhere about how much I enjoy reading books which are ostensibly aimed at younger readers. But as I always say, why should kids have all the fun? So this is a book called Utterly Dark in the Face of the Deep by Philip Reeve. Uh, It's only just out this year. Uh, uh, Philip Reeve is the author of The Mortal Engines Tetralogy and The Fever Crumb Trilogy, which are both set in a devastated future world where cities have become mobile on vast traction engines. So, I mean, that's an absurd premise, but it's he handles it very, very well, and it's very entertaining. And it's it's not uh, it's not light stuff. I mean, it, there's some very dark themes which emerge in those in those two books. Now, this one, uh, this new book, it feels as though it's aimed at a rather younger audience than Mortal Engines, and it has an entirely different setting. It's set in a sort of I don't know parallel version of the Regency period in Britain. You know, sort of think of the period of the of the books of, of Jane Austen, but in which there are a group of additional British islands called the Autumn Isles. And to the west of these islands lies open sea. It's not it wasn't clear to me whether the, the continent of America lies on the other side of this this ocean. It's, it's uh, I don't think it's ever mentioned in the book. But the island of Wild Sea is the most westernmost of these autumn isles, and its inhabitants are terrified of the Western Ocean, uh, because occasionally distant hills become visible in the far distance, which they call the Hidden Lands. And they have frightening tales of a monster called the Gorm, which emerges periodically from the sea to create devastation. And there must always be a watcher on Wild Sea who looks out each evening to spot whether the hidden lands and the Gorm have arisen again in order to sound a warning. So you can imagine that the Gorm represents the you know capricious, dangerous nature of the sea, and sometimes being the source of sustenance and a means of transport, but more often threatening and often lethal to human beings. Now, on Wild Sea, the young girl Utterly is the adopted child of Andrew Dark, the current watcher, who says that he found her as a baby, washed up on the shore in a wicker basket or coracle. But when Utterly is 11 years old, Andrew Dark dies, and his body is found washed up on the beach, drowned, his pockets filled with stones. So Andrew's younger brother, Will, who's been living a sort of loose life in Regency England, or the equivalent of Regency England, um, is forced to return to Wildsea to take on the role of Watcher. But while they wait for his return, young Utterly stands in into the role as Watcher, and she goes and stands and watches each night through a telescope. And one night as she watches, she does indeed see the hidden lands appear. So is the Gorm about to return? When Will finally arrives, he's this sort of young man, he was a good deal younger than his brother, He's dismissive of the tales of the hidden lands and scornful of what Utterly says that she's seen. He's even rather suspicious of Utterly herself and where she came from, and he jokes about her name. He and his brother used to talk about if they had children, what they might call them because their surname was Dark. And, uh, you know, completely dark or utterly dark possible names. And here Andrew has called this young child Utterly. And he's unable to understand uh, why Andrew really adopted this child that he found on the shore. And she, listening to all this, feels very bitterly hurt and and rejected. Worse still, Will is determined to scotch all these superstitious tales about the Gorm by, you know, following scientific principles, by conducting an experiment which, according to the legend, is sure to conjure up the Gorm. He's certain, of course, that the experiment will fail, and he'll use that failure to prove that the Gorm doesn't exist. Well, you can guess how that turns out. But who is Utterly? Really? Where did she really come from? Does the Gorm really exist? And if so, what does it want? And so the tale leads in some very unexpected directions. So there are lots of interesting, well-drawn characters and I thought a pretty gripping plot. 
My only criticism is that for some of the book, things seem to happen too utterly rather than being initiated by her, so she seems to lack a, a degree of agency. However, there are a couple of points where she does indeed take very courageous action on her own. I, I imagine this isn't going to be part of a trilogy or anything. It doesn't seem like it leads on to a sequel, although I suppose it's possible. Anyway, I, 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 I liked it a lot, so uh, that's, uh, that's my take on that. Oh, good. Yes, I know you're a big, big fan of Philip Reeve, and uh, mm. uh, yeah, I like uh, the Mortal Engines book a lot. Yeah, that's right, and it's a, it's good that when you find a particular author that you can know and trust, uh, and when you read their new books, if it's a bit of a fizzer, let let us say, to uh, you know, it's not quite as good as the rest of them. If they've got a bit of a track record, it's uh, it's okay. You can you bear uh, with uh, it. Yeah. You, you, give them the benefit of the doubt. You yes, you'll give them the benefit of the doubt and uh, forgive them that one. And um, it's only when they get to the stage where they've had you know three or four duds in a row that you start thinking, yeah, maybe they've lost it now. But um, that doesn't happen terribly often. I think the publishers are going to realise that before we, the reader, does. Mm. Uh, but it, it's interesting to know that. Uh, this gentleman still has a, a fair level of um, imagination. Indeed. Kicking along. And isn't that what we're all about here? Imagining. Imagining Indeed. stuff. Yep. Okay, um, I'm back crime again. As I said, I'm crime all the way this time. But now I've shifted all the way over from the back streets of Glasgow to the sunny climes of Southern California just south of uh, Los Angeles. And I've recently read A is for Alibi by uh, Sue Grafton from 1982. This is uh, the number one in the author's Kinsey Mahoney, Mahoney series. I actually, I couldn't work out. It's M-I-L-L-H-O-N-E. I actually went to look for a pronunciation guide and everyone I said to, every time, everyone I went to said, oh, that name's not here. Would you like to register it? <laughs> I thought, well, no, I won't really. But I'm going to say Mahoney, so there we go. So this is a series of books that Sue Grafton started to write in 1982. And they all have the A is for, B is for, and so on. And it just, uh, so B is for burglar, C is for corpse, C is for evidence, D's for death, whatever. Um, and she was intending to write the whole 26 of these. Unfortunately, uh, she passed away uh, before she could quite finish, and she got to um, uh, Y. Uh, wow. And that That's Y is, for, y is mm. for yellow. So that did, did very well. Uh, but uh, she made it a point in her will, that, she, and she made her, her husband and children promise that firstly nobody would ever finish the series if she didn't and that's fair enough that's her particular choice and also that she would have absolutely nothing to do with either film or television versions uh, I believe that Grafton had worked in Hollywood for a while and had known what had happened to a number of decent works uh, crime novels and didn't want the same thing happening to her but we're in a different world now from where we were back in the 1980s uh, when she first started or even 10, 15 years ago. And it now looks like uh, a production company has been allocated the rights for this and there's a series of um, TV series is going to start some stage. Now, I don't know whether they're going to do the right thing and do three or four episodes per novel, because it's quite a it's reasonably short novel, it's about 250, 260, this one, and most of them are around about that, uh, that, that length. Hopefully they do the right thing and find a good, uh, good lead character and carry on from there. So anyway, about the book. This is an example of the um, Californian PI, private investigator, subgenre. And it's a good example of that particular subgenre. And it turns things on its head a bit because Kinsey Mahoney is a woman. She's an ex-cop who's been working as a PI for a while, set up her own business, seems to be doing okay in this small town of Santa Teresa. And one day she comes into her office and a woman by the name of Nikki Fife is standing outside her door. Now, Nikki Fife's just been released from eight years jail for murdering for the murder of her husband, Lawrence. 
a crime she said she didn't commit. But now she's out on parole and she wants um, Kinsey Mahoney to investigate and try to identify the, real, the true murderer, as you, as you would. She's, she's well off, so she can afford... Um, she's well off because she had money of her own before, uh, before she was convicted. And so she could afford to have a private investigator look into this. Now, before very long, Mahoney goes to the cops and finds out that there's a second unsolved murder which occurred four days after Lawrence's, the husband's, using exactly the same method in the same sort of area. Hmm. So the method of murder was the substitution of an antihistamine tablet with poison. So what you do is you you put a couple or take the couple of the antihistamine tablets, take out the powder, put the poison in, put it in the bottle, so you don't know when it's going to happen. And in fact, you hope that it's going to happen a, a while down the track because that means then that you are not directly contemporaneously um, associated with the death. Anyway, these novels are set in Southern California in really true Lou Archer uh, territory, the Ross MacDonald stuff that he did so beautifully well. It's a fast-moving, easy read, um, which ticks all the boxes for this type of novel. So anyway, the difference here is that uh, this PI is a smart, determined woman who doesn't use her feminine wiles to get what she needs. She just uses her intelligence and smarts to be able to figure out what's going on. It takes a while to, to start figuring out what things are happening and where it's all sort of fitting together. But it's a, it's a shortish novel, 250, 280 pages, under 300 anyway. So it's perfectly designed for this type of thing. I really like this. As I said, I think it's a very good example of its subgenre. I've got another 20, 20, 25, another 24 books in this particular series to read. <laughs> mm. If I read one a year, I might just be able to get there, David. I might <laughs> just be able. But I would think that this is probably, um, it's worthwhile following up. It's worthwhile having a look at it and reading one of them. Uh, mm. A couple of the, the later ones, Chief and Gumshoe and uh, one other, won a couple of awards, the Seamus Award and the Anthony Award. They're good light material. You know how I was talking about I've been looking around for comfort reads. I may have found it. I may have found another one. So I'm happy with that. I think that's good. There's a lot that's going on here. My wife's a big fan, so I've got a big slab of these uh, uh, books up on the shelf that I haven't read, but she's she's read. I gave this one three point seven out of five. It's interesting the the business about the um, the author setting limits on what can be done with their their characters and the and their plots and so on. Uh, I mean, there is sort of thing called a literary literary will, isn't there, where yep. you actually specify that in, in some detail. The, the other one, which is interesting, which I haven't actually read yet, but um, is Jack Vance, who uh, specified in, in uh, or specified to his son anyway, that he didn't want people using his characters, but they could use his backgrounds. Oh, okay. And um, Matthew Hughes has written a, a book called Barbarians of the Beyond, which is uh, set in the universe of the um, Demon Princes novels by Jack Vance. And I haven't actually read that yet, though I've bought it. So, um, but that's uh, that was a specification he he, he put in his uh, either put in his will or or made uh, made his son agree to that um, people wouldn't be able to use his characters but they could use the backgrounds. So, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yep, it is. All right, well, I'm going to roll on to something a bit literary because this is the winner of this year's Miles Franklin Award, which Perry has already talked about on the podcast, so I hope I don't duplicate too much of what he had to say, but we'll see whether we agree or not. And this is The Labyrinth by Amanda Lowry. I thought that the start of this book, uh, the, the first few pages of this book uh, were interesting in, in various ways. And so I thought I'd I'd talk about that to begin with. So firstly, there's the epigraph, uh, which is a little bit of verse or a quote at the beginning of a book. uh, And that's the cure for many ills, noted Jung, is to make something. And uh, that's indeed what happens in the book is that the author, the the main character uh, makes something to to ease her her mind. And then we have the subtitle of the book, uh, which is a pastoral. What does she mean by that? Um, so I looked up pastoral in the dictionary, and there are several meanings listed, but these two seem to be the ones that seem to apply. Uh, so pastoral might mean 
of or relating to the countryside, not urban, or it might relate to spiritual care or guidance. And both of those seem applicable here, um, because the focus of the book is the rural seaside township where Erica, who's the protagonist, she first rents and then buys an old fibro house. I think it was a bit more than a shack, it's more than a, more of a house, with a large sandy backyard. And we discover that Erica has come there to be close to the prison where her son Daniel is incarcerated. But as time goes by, she gets to know her neighbours and the various quirks of, of them and uh, she becomes a part of that rural community and she's left, left the city well behind. And then we have the first words of the story, which are, Let me begin in my father's house. I grew up in an asylum, a manicured madhouse. So mental health is an ongoing theme through the book too. Uh, in two ways, the madness of Erica's son Daniel and Erica's own precarious stability and need for spiritual comfort. The other thing I suppose one could say is that fathers or the absence of fathers are also a driving force of the story. Part one is subtitled, What Comes After the Father? And many of Daniel's problems seem to stem from the fact that he's never known his biological father uh, with whom Erica broke up long ago. And uh, when he was young, she had another relationship with an abusive man. It's possible he also abused Daniel, or at least was violent to him. Now, Daniel is or was an artist, and he's in prison because in a fit of unbalanced despair, possibly he was suffering schizophrenia, he set fire to his canvases, which led to the whole apartment block where he lived going up in flames and killing a number of people, including a young couple who were there on the honeymoon. And so he was convicted of negligent homicide or manslaughter. And in her first visits to him in the prison, Erica finds him barely coherent, sometimes not speaking to her at all. Uh, But she manages to convince the authorities to let her send him some art supplies, which seem to begin to break through to him. But she herself is suffering greatly from the shame and guilt of what her son's done. She's broken up with her brother over Daniel's actions. And she needs to find release and to to centre herself. And to do this, she decides to build a labyrinth in her backyard, a labyrinth which isn't so much a maze as a constrained, formal path, a guide to meditation. And much of the book concerns her worrying about how best to design and build this labyrinth. Finally, she encounters a young man, Yurko, who we eventually discover is illegally in Australia, having run away from his own country after a violent dispute with his father, who was a stonemason. But Yurko, too, because his father was a stonemason, has grown up with that, and he understands working with stone. And Erica quickly realises that Yurko is just the person to help her construct her labyrinth. Not only that, but he eventually becomes a kind of substitute son to her. At the end, with the labyrinth still not entirely complete, Erica sort of finds a degree of peace. I liked it a lot, and I can see why it won the Miles Franklin Award, though if it had been up to me, I think I would have preferred, out of the nominees, the Rain Heron, about which I'll be talking next. So you you talked about this on the podcast before. Do you have any further thoughts no i think i think you basically pretty much covered it i think that yeah it's a it's a book of healing that she has to go through in a journey that from when she starts until uh, she gets through to the end and you know that it's an ongoing journey mm. it doesn't finish at the end of the book it's going to keep on going so you've got a yeah. slice of it but not all of it i just thought i just thought it was just beautifully written because mm. you, you don't struggle you don't struggle with the book at all? No, it's, very, know, it's a very easy read. You yeah. sort of read it and you think, ooh, there's a lot of depth here. Maybe I'd need to go back and reread this paragraph again. Yeah. Not yeah. because you don't understand it, because you think it was deceptively simple that you may have missed something. Mm. And it has depths to it. I, lo- I did like this a lot. I think um, it's probably going to be very high this year in my um in some of the in one of the rankings book, in one of my rankings in one of the book mm. categories mm. Uh, and I was happy to uh, see it with the Miles Franklin it was it was it's look it was a much it's a much more readable book than you normally find winning those big prizes overseas like the um, like the Booker um this you shouldn't be daunted by the fact it's won Australia's major literary award this is a this is a good read a it very good read. read yeah yeah sure uh-huh. Well, I'm going to deal with a uh, an award winner as well, but this time, because I'm dealing with crime, this yep. is a Ned Kelly Award winner from 20, oh, yes. 2018. And this one's called Crossing the Lines, uh, which was uh, uh, published in 2017 by Solari Gentile. Now, I've found out 
that this has been published in the US under a different title called After She Wrote Him, which I think is a terrible title, mm-hmm. to be perfectly frank. I think Crossing the Lines is fine. Maybe the publisher decided that there was another book called Crossing the Lines that was out and they needed to find something. I would have had a better title than After She Wrote Him. But anyway, you'll find out why it might be sort of applicable. Now, Solari Gentile is mostly known for a long-running series of historical crime novels featuring Roland Sinclair, a young artist and gentleman from a wealthy New South Wales family who is also a reluctant amateur sleuth. He just seems to find himself in positions where he basically has to solve something. And the stories are set in Sydney in the 1930s. So uh, Gentile won a David Award for the second novel in the series, A Decline in Profits, and that's P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, which is an excellent excellent title. Mm -hmm. And two of the books in the series, A Murder Unmentioned and A Testament of Character, have previously been shortlisted in the best novel category of the Ned Kelly Awards, but this is a first win. Uh, Now, this is not part of a series, but it's a a standalone. And Mm -hmm. I I, I say all of that because there's a lot that I'm going to be talking about in this particular book, which relates to what I've just said about the author herself. Yep. Okay. This one is a little bit more complicated than the last one, last two, so bear with me if I... It's hard to explain without giving too much away, but anyway. Now, the novel features two main characters, Madeleine de, de Leon, D-apostrophe-L-E-O-N, who's was a corporate lawyer but dropped her career to become a full-time writer, rather like Gentile herself. And Edward McGinty, who's a literary novelist, who has an idea to write a novel with a crime novelist as his main character doesn't want to have it as a solving a crime. He just wants a crime novelist as his main character because he thinks they're interesting. So now, Delion has decided to step away from her long-running... So Delion's the character inside this particular book. She's also an author of a long-running series of novels featuring her amateur sleuth, Veronica Kilwilly, and she's decided to write a standalone novel about a literary author... <laughs> who was president in an art gallery, I think you're getting where this is going, president in an art gallery where the murder of an art critic is committed and who slowly becomes the chief suspect. Her character's name? Edward McGinnity. Okay. So within De Leon's book, McGinty is working on his literary novel, which he describes as an exploration of an author's relationship with her protagonist, an examination of the tenuous line between belief and reality imagination and self, and what happens when that line is crossed. His character's name, Madeleine de Leon. <laughs> so this is two, this is very, if you like, very meta. This has got really? two novels being written. The main, Which one's first? I don't know. I can't remember which one came first. I don't really care because it's just such a wonderful, clever. it's just this wonder, wonderful, clever way of doing it where you've got two novels being, two Two characters, each writing novels, each with the other character as their main character. So they're, they're writing about each other. McGinty's life, because he's the one that's been um, he's sort of under suspicion for this murder, slowly starts to spiral out of control as he's born further and further into the gaze of the police who keep on, who are investigating this murder and they just keep on coming back to him. And he decides that he's going to carry out some sort of investigation of his own to be able to see how he see if he can find things out because he thinks the police are just completely missing stuff. But he's totally out of his depth with this because he doesn't know how to do it. So he thinks, I know somebody that does. I've got a character that does that. So he turns to his lead character, Madeleine de Leon, and starts asking her questions. And she answers back. Now, this could be really stupidly handled if it was allowed to get out of control, but it doesn't. It starts off as, well, I wonder what she would do. And then he asks her a question and she answers. And it's only just that one little bit. You think, oh, yeah, well, that's, that's okay. Because, you know, he's, it's within his head. He's allowed to ask that question and her to answer it. And then Madeleine Dion starts having trouble as well because she becomes fixated with Edward McGinty. And her husband starts worrying about the fact that she that De Leon is ignoring him, spending far too much time on this finally gets gets her to go along and see a psychologist and things sort of spiral out of control a little bit there. 
so the two threads become more and more entwined as this goes along. And now the reader might find this confusing. I didn't. I thought this was excellent. I sort of figured out I knew where everything was all the time because I think Gentile is such an author that she can actually carry this. And you know you're in good, safe hands. She's done a lot of, written a number of books, seven or eight novels, which have all done very well. So again, we come down to trust David mm. here with this. Mm, yeah. Are you going to trust the author that they're going to be able to land this? Now, when I finished, I wasn't too sure she'd done it properly. Ah. And I thought, oh, was that really the way that I wanted it to end? So I went away, a couple of days later, it struck me, no, 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 no. I had wanted it to end in a certain way. But really the only way that it could have ended was the way that the author took it. And so you have to step back from your desires for the characters and what you, where you want them to end up and then go back and think of the story again and work your way through to figure out, is this what was the, the logical conclusion? And I think that it is. Mm. Now, I think Gentile's done an excellent job with this particular book, and this is highly recommended because, and when you think about it, the last couple of Ned Kelly Award winners that we've read, what was it, uh, Consolation, Consolation, The Wife and the Widow, and this one, some damn good crime novels here that are, you mm. know, I don't care about whether you're talking about cultural cringe or anything else. These are the equivalent of anything that has been written anywhere in the world at the moment. And these some excellent, excellent Australian crime stuff coming out, and this is a great example of it. More, more, almost more literary than crime, but we've been saying that about a few of them anyway. Because sure. I mean, Gary Dish's novels are literary, but they just happen to be police procedurals in there as well. But that's just the way that things work. I recommend this one. This will be high again in my mm. year's best crime novels, and I gave it four point five out mm, of five. Right. It certainly sounds intriguing. Yeah, I'd. I'd, I'd I'd recommend you pick it up and have a look at it. Yeah, I think I'll I'll probably do that. Yeah, indeed. All right, so finally I come to... I come to the Rain Heron. Now, I've I've been trying to read this book all year, just about. It feels like I've been trying to read it all year. (laughs) I've been recommending it all year. Yeah, well, you have. And and I had it... uh, I had it as an ebook from the library at one point, but uh, because I was reading so many other things for the podcast, I didn't get around to it in time before it had to go back to the library. And of course, because it, it's it's been uh, so lauded and, and uh, awarded, it's on everybody's list. And you know, you, you get you go to the library, and it's you're like one one hundred twenty third of, of one hundred sixty five <laughs> people in the list. Anyway, it finally turned up at the library uh, for for me. To, I could I should have bought it. I think is what I should have done. But anyway, it finally turned up just a couple of weeks ago. So I finally got to read it. So why is it so uh, so popular? Well, it won this year's Age Book of the Year prize, and it was shortlisted for the Mars Franklin and several other awards. I think, and it's not hard to see why. It's a it's a really excellent book, but it isn't easy to talk about or to, to summarise briefly. Now, so at its most superficial level, the, the book is about the legend of the magical rain heron of the title, a bird composed of rain of water somehow connected to the climate, able to summer up storms, bring drought or flood, or steady soaking rains to the farms of those that it seems it favours. But it's quick to defend itself if it's attacked, and its favour is easily lost. The author's descriptions of this bird and its transformations and behaviour throughout the book are beautifully done. I mean, you would really sort of long to see this creature. Now, the rain heron, of course, symbolises the the beauty, strength, and sometimes the danger of the natural world, and the attempts in the book by the authorities to exploit it, and to capture it and to exploit it, symbolises, I think, man's uncaring destruction of the environment because of greed and the lust for power. But beyond that initial, but, but nevertheless important reading, I think that at its core, this is a novel of character. And it leads us through the character arc of one particular person, from innocence through mortal sin to penance and ultimate redemption. However, the book's not told in strict chronological order. It takes us a while to realise who that main character is. And I'm going to give away some spoilers as I outline this character arc, so be warned. 
I made attempts not to do that, David. But I'm happy. I'm I'm, I'm happy for you. the book's been out eighteen months now, so yeah, I'm happy for you to go ahead with it's that. Time, I think. I think yeah. the only way I can talk sensibly about the book is yeah, to okay. Well, I'll well, give you that. a few spoilers. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, so we're introduced to the legend of this miraculous creature, the Lorraine Hearn, in part zero of this book, which is constructed in five parts, numbered zero through four. I'm wondering whether the author is a is a programmer at heart, because programmers all start counting with zero, as I explained to my grandson. Uh, so it's in part zero of the book, each of the parts of the book is uh, told in a, from a different and distinct point of view. In part one of the book, we've already had part zero, in part one of the book we have the third person point of view of Ren, who just R-E-N, who is a middle-aged woman who has retreated from civilization to live in the forest on a mountainside. And she's barely managing to survive there, and she does so with the assistance of a man called Barlow, who lives in a village at the foot of the mountains. And he trades her essential items for animal skins and fur, and really the balance of the trade is always in her favour. He gives her things which are much more valuable than what she gives him, but he's obviously concerned about her. Now, we're never told explicitly why Wren has fled to the wilderness, but it becomes clear that there's been some sort of traumatic political event in the unnamed country where she lives. Because it's not really Australia, I don't think. It's it's an unnamed country, which is in some ways similar to Australia, but in other ways not. And this event is often referred to as the coup, although the unrest has apparently been going on for years, so it seems more like an ongoing civil war. And part one begins ominously with the words, soldiers have come to the village. Now these soldiers are led by a graceful and confident young woman, Lieutenant Harker, and they discover Wren on the mountainside. They've been ordered to to find a rain heron and to capture it. Harker is cold, determined and very efficient at her job. Through a variety of very cruel means, short of actual torture, Harker forces Wren to lead the soldiers to where Wren saw the bird as a child. In their attempts to catch the bird and confine it to a cage, it pecks at Lieutenant Harker and tears out one of her eyes. Wren attempts to free the caged bird, but Harker, driven almost crazy with pain, shoots Wren through the throat and leaves her for dead. We then shift gear entirely with part two, and this is told from the third-person point of view of young Zoe, a girl in her early teens, who lives in a fishing village somewhere to the south of the country, where it's cold most of the time, so we can assume that it's in the southern hemisphere, it's warmer in the north than in the south. The main activity of the village is harvesting the ink of a particular species of squid. This ink has almost magical powers. When mixed with food, it enhances and deepens its flavour. When mixed with paint, it wonderfully strengthens the colour. How the ink is harvested is a deep secret of the village, which is shown by her aunt to Zoe when she reaches a certain age. One day, however, a man from the north comes to the village determined to turn the ink harvesting into an efficient industrial process. He's ignored or mocked by the villagers who, of course, refuse to tell him the secret. And he becomes increasingly desperate uh, to find out how it all works and to the point where ultimately, in anger, he shoves Zoe's aunt into the freezing water of the sea where she drowns. Zoe then eventually agrees to tell the northerner the secret of the squid, and she takes him out to sea, at which point she deliberately upsets the boat, and the northerner dies a grisly death, though she seems to make an honest attempt to save him. Afterwards, Zoe leaves the village and goes to the north, and there she's recruited or conscripted into the army, where, and here's the spoiler, she eventually reaches the rank of lieutenant, and is sent with a squad to capture the rain heron. She is, we realise, Lieutenant Harker of Part 1, and she's the person whose character arc I think is central to the book. Part three is told from the third-person point of view of Daniel, a young medic with Harker's squad, and we follow them as they take the captured Rainer into a remote location as they've been ordered. And they go on this long, strange journey through a series of largely unpopulated and very varied landscapes, which makes us think yeah, it's not, not quite Australia. There's some very odd landscapes they go through. While they're on this journey, Harker refuses all but the most basic treatment for her wound, even when it becomes infected. She's clearly in both physical and mental agony, and it seems as though she's punishing herself for shooting Wren, and she has second thoughts about having captured the Wren heron. And there's one significant bit of dialogue which I, I thought was interesting, the quote. So Daniel asks her, Why do they want it? Who? The generals, or whoever's in charge. She shrugged. Men want things. 
They hear about something and pretty soon they're convinced it belongs to them. And part four is written in the first person from Zoe's own point of view, which really lets us understand her thinking and her feelings of guilt as she undergoes yet more trauma and loss and eventually decides that she must return the rain heron to where it came from. In doing so, she achieves an unexpected degree of redemption and forgiveness, and the book ends on an optimistic note. So, look, I found this very powerful. Uh, it was, I think, it's deservedly applauded and, and honoured, and uh, I'm looking forward to reading Arnott's forthcoming next book, Limber Lost, which I've read about, and to going back and reading his debut novel, Flames. You uh, you thought this was a pretty good... I did. I thought, um, uh, yeah, I... I did think this was um, excellent. Uh, it's probably 15 months since I've read it now, yeah. but I still remember a lot about uh, about this particular book. Um, enjoyed it a lot, recommended it to everybody that I can recommend it to, um, and everybody that's read it seems to think it's wonderful. I try not to give them the spoilers that you've given them here, but that's fair <laughs> enough. No I, no, I understand, because the only way to really discuss it, I was really... I had a couple of books this year, or the last 12 months that I've been talking about, where I've really struggled to be able to work out how to say anything about them because there is a bit of a bit of a twist there. The Wife and the Widow, the one I mentioned earlier, I mean, that's really difficult to talk yeah, you about. You can't talk about that without... Yeah, without, because you ruin it. Uh, this yeah. one, uh, I don't think it ruins it, but I didn't want to give too much of it away, not long yeah. after I'd read it, because... I had it recommended to me by Chong, who uh, did the cover for it. Your beautiful uh, cover. It is a fantastic cover uh, for text publishing. He said it was uh, one that would uh, fit very well with what I had been reading and what uh, what we'd been talking about. And I was glad that he did because it was an, an excellent, excellent choice. It was up against that uh, Laura Jean McKay, All the Animals in That Country, a fair bit, that I covered both of those. I thought The Rain Heron was a better novel for me uh, other people may think differently mm. uh, I, I I think this 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 guy's got a lot of talent I really do mm. oh, I think um, so, yeah. he, he writes beautifully and I'm uh, some people have said to me that flames is an even better book mm. hopefully I've got a copy of it I went yeah. and bought it yeah. and I'm going to uh, try to get to it over summer but I'm also looking forward to his next one and uh, he's going to be somebody to watch. Yeah, certainly somebody to watch. He's just yeah. got a very interesting imagination that he just utilises just enough without going completely. He doesn't. He doesn't go full blown high fantasy here, does he? I mean, there's that fantastic element that yeah. is just there. That's just enough to to mm. wrap his novel around to give you something to say. Well, oh, that's that's an interesting concept that he's got there. Yeah, and the rest of it follows from that without going, oh, here's the fantastical concept and it's going to dominate the whole of the plot and the novel and the characters. That isn't the case. It's just there yeah. around the edges. Yeah. And um, I think he handles it excellently well. Yeah. I mean, that's the, really you sort of have to think to yourself, is this fantasy, is this science fiction? It's not either of those, okay, really. But I say it's, it's a literary novel with a fantastic element in it. Yes. But it's to me, it's, let's say it's basically a, a story of this particular character throughout the book and, and her her journey of, of redemption, really. It, yes. Yeah. I mean, she just happens to live in a land where there are some fantastical things uh, mm. and it doesn't necessarily make this a fantasy or science fiction, but mm. it's one of those books that if you said to somebody, well, you would like... You like this particular type of book. You'll like this. Um, I mean, I, I would thought that if people like Guy Gabriel Klein, uh, K rather Guy Gabriel K, they would like this particular um, this particular novel. But read it because it's a good literary novel. Mm. I, I did. I did wonder. I don't know what, what the truth of this is, but I did wonder whether part two might have been a standalone novella at one stage um, because it's it's. It's almost distinct. It's distinct in in the environment. You don't get any mention of the rain heron in that that section, and the connection of Zoe at the end of that to become Lieutenant Harker. I actually wasn't totally convinced by that. Okay. Um, so I, I did wonder whether maybe it had been initially a separate a separate work. I, that he decided to put in. Well, I was when I was reading it, I thought 
um, I was halfway through that second section. I thought, oh, this is going to be a series of uh, connected novellas, um, which I'm okay with. I don't have a problem with that. And I was thinking, well, how's it going to connect up with the piece that we've already uh, mm. already got to? It gets there. I was satisfied with the way it It, it, it works, but it. it just wasn't quite as convincing oh, as, as I thought maybe. You're a hard man, David. Oh, I am a hard man. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so it's good. We would recommend that one and I would... We certainly would. I'm, 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 I don't think I've given away too many spoilers. It's still well, very well worth it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sounds like you're suggesting it's going to be high up in your list as well. So. Oh, very much so, yeah. yeah. It will be, yeah. Now, and that's, and that's the thing. David, while we don't do our best of the year in December, we do them in January. Because who knows what we'll read between now and then? We've got three weeks to go. I mean, yes. we could read the four or five best novels of all year, all of the year, yeah. in the next uh, three or four weeks. Yeah, um, which I think that happened last year. I certainly read one, which ended up in my top ten, which I read between our last podcast of the year and the, the following year. So. I wouldn't be at all surprised if I did as well. Mm. Uh, but then I have a hell of a lot of categories, so <laughs> some of them are, uh, don't have terribly many, uh, terribly many entries in them. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's uh, you have to allow yourself... I understand why a lot of the magazines put out their best of the years in November or December, because they're wanting to get people to buy books for Christmas. And people have said, this is the best book of the year, here it is for you for Christmas, because it's out and it's available. And they are the people that are getting the books early. So they're yeah. getting, they're now looking at January, February, March books, maybe April books for next mm. year. We're only looking for stuff that's hit the shelf, and so that's what we're we're going for. But anyway, that's what we're going to be doing in our next episode. Yeah, we're going to be uh, looking at our best books of the year. That will be. The first week in January. Yep, the third, I think. Is yeah, I think about the coming. third. And then we're yep. going to move on to, uh, as I said earlier, the best film and television coming up later in January. And, and then and then we'll see what happens after we'll see that. We'll see how we go from there. Yeah, That's right. Indeed. All right, David, All right. I think we're done. We are. Thank you very much. Have a That's good right. Christmas and New Year. Thank you. Same to you. Uh, I will be seeing you uh, in person before uh, we actually talk again on the podcast, but that and that's okay. But um, enjoy your time. I hope your family has a good time. I hope that um, uh, I hope Australia does well in the cricket. What else can I say? Have a good New Year. Indeed, enjoy thank it. you. Right, okay. thanks, Can't David. Bye. Bye.